Welcome back, everybody, to the Tree Church Bible Study. We're really glad to be walking alongside of you in your understanding and your growth of the Word of God. And it is, it has been awesome to be able to process through. I, I was just thinking about this the other day. We've gone through the book of Romans. We've gone through the book of Revelation. If you go all the way back to uh, when this started, and it really started in the COVID season, though that was a, a difficult time, one of the good things that came out of it was this this Bible study and this hunger for Bible study. And so we've gone through the book of Psalms. We've gone through the book of Philippians. We've gone through the book of Revelation. And uh, we're getting ready to wrap up Mark and getting ready to start the book of Colossians, which will finish out the year for us. And and uh, it, it has been a great study. And it's been such a, it, it's been such a pleasure. My, my heart and my love and my desire is, uh, is studying Scripture is understanding the word is 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 helping others do that as well and helping others understand what they're experiencing when they sit down and read uh, the Bible and so it, it's it's a joy for me and I've really enjoyed processing through all these different books, getting to discover all that they have to say because when I sit down and study and I'm sure that other pastors would say likewise when we sit down and study. It, it, it not only benefits uh, you as we express what we're studying, but it benefits us in that we get to uh, study and look through and understand God's words, God's word in different ways. So it's been a pleasure and a joy, and I hope that you guys are uh, really um, thriving and benefiting from these these times. Now today, um, I want to take a little bit of time to explain something that you possibly have seen in your Bible, and then I'm going to get into the passages that we're going to be looking at today. I'm going to be finishing off Mark chapter 16, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 20, but I want to talk about something that showed up uh, in between verse 8 and verse 9, or at least I should say it probably showed up in most Bibles, or at least it's footnoted, or there's some sort of notation, um, because there is a conversation in the scholarly world and in Bible translation about whether Mark chapter 16 verses 9 through 20 were actually part of Mark's writing. Now, um, that sounds controversial. That sounds kind of even, um, for for many of us that have a very, very high view of Scripture, that can seem, um, uh, how do I want to say it, Uh, blasphemous (laughs) even, and and maybe that's too strong of a term, but 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 we think at times, and we have this conception at times of, of Scripture being handed down from on high, kind of like we get the picture of Moses getting the Ten Commandments. And what we know of, of how Scripture was passed down and the process that, that God used was a little bit different than that. And it, it, it involved a lot more human hands and a lot more tradition and a lot more uh, history than um, than simply God just speaking and us uh, having the Bible in its entirety and its whole. And I think it's important, and I want to talk about it, because I, I debated it on whether or not I even brought it up, but I want to talk about it because you see it in the text, you see it in the footnotes, you see it right there in what you're reading, and it can cause confusion. You can wonder why. And I've actually had people ask me, why does the end of Mark say this? Why do we have bracketed portions of John? And, and what, what, is it, what are they talking about when they say this is not included in other manuscripts? And so I want to talk about that. And it's good for us to understand the process. And it's good for us to understand why those portions 
are, are bracketed off the way that they are and why we should have confidence in uh, the English translations that we have and that we read and why we can trust that God is revealing himself through these, uh, through these methods and modes and translations. So uh, let me just start by explaining a little bit of the process of, of how Scripture was collected and put together, and then, um, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the ending of Mark uh, 9 through 20 and why scholars uh, debate and why they think about uh, whether or not um, they were actually part of the original uh, letter or original uh gospel that Mark wrote. So let me um, let me start here in this way, and I'm going to try to keep this concise and as clear as possible. So in the at the end of the, the time of the apostles, what we have in the New Testament is we have the church growing, we have it thriving, and we have um, all of these different churches popping up all over uh, Palestine and the Mediterranean area and Syria and Damascus and in what's now modern day in Turkey, it was considered Asia Minor at that time, where you see like uh, Colossae and, and and Laodicea and Thessalonica, and you, you get all of these different names. You get Antioch and you get Ephesus and and all these names that are, have become pretty synonymous with the Bible. Churches are cropping up in these places, and in in the initial the initial um, testimony or the initial thrust of the disciples was not that they handed people a Bible and said, here, read this about Jesus. It was, they had a story to tell. They had witnessed something. They had, they were eyewitnesses of the the death and resurrection and life of Jesus. And the message that they had was that he was the Messiah, the son of God, the savior and hope of the world. And they passed this message wherever they went. And so as the churches were established, you start to see these pockets of, 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 of believers cropping up where this message has touched lives and people were transformed and they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And oftentimes it started in the synagogues uh, in, in these towns, but then it would move into the Gentiles. And this is actually Paul's mission is that he goes out to and begins to preach to Gentile believers. And so you start to get these gatherings of people. At the same time, what you have is the apostles begin to um, they begin to to be martyred. They begin to die off, and and what um, what's happening is there begins to be a little bit of a fear of of how will we stay true to the message uh, of the eyewitnesses? How will we stay true to the message of the apostles? And so, what we start to see is that the writings that, that these these ladies and gentlemen. Uh, put together and and the writings that they they collected, the letters that they sent, um, they began to be collected and revered by the churches. Now, <clears throat> not every single one of the writers was an apostle. Um, Mark is is possibly John Mark. We talked about this at the beginning. He would have been a traveling companion to Paul and a cousin to Barnabas. Um, so he would have had connection to the apostles, like a close connection. But uh, he wouldn't necessarily have been an apostle. But somehow, in some way, the, the, the author of Mark would have been one who carried weight and authority with these churches. And he would have been tied to the original apostolic witness. And so he would have been a trusted authority to tell the story of Jesus. I.e., he was someone who, who knew the people, 
who saw Jesus. He would have been possibly even one who was there with them, even though he would not have been considered one of the original 12. He would have been there with them. And and there's even this odd story in Mark where um, where where there's the story of a young man who who runs away and even he's so scared he sh- he stripped off his all of his clothes and he runs away naked and so there's this the, the there there's this story in the book of Mark and and many scholars think that it's talking about Mark himself he's he's putting himself in the gospel and and so what you have is is all of this is happening at the time and you see these these guys starting to write and starting to put down on paper. First of all, to address issues within the church, but also to 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 begin to tell the story of the Gospels. And this is Luke's whole thing. Luke said, I want to sit down and I want to convey this story. I interviewed the witnesses. I I uh, I, I wrote this like a history and a biography and a, and a theology all in one. And, and I'm going to send this to you so that you can trust and believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so these things start to get written down, and they start to get passed around the churches. Well, as they get passed around, you can imagine it's hard to keep documents in good order these days when they're being uh, traveled with in the weather and the rain. I, I mean, we can't hardly contain things uh, today or pass things along today without some form of degradation happening. So what began to happen was, is as these letters of Paul and as these gospels were passed around— the churches began to recognize in them that these were true and accurate portraits of their faith, of what they believed to be true. And so they began to recognize that these writings were inspired by the Holy Spirit, that they were different and that they were special, and that they accurately conveyed the truths of who God is and the story that he wanted to convey through the gospel of Jesus. And and, and I'm simply talking about the New Testament process right now. So this is all happening and 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 what the churches begin to do is because there there are letters being passed on so imagine a guy on a horse he's carrying one copy and he stops at one church he reads the letter aloud the church is so enthralled by by what's being said and they they so value what's being said they decide hey i think we need a copy of this as well and so what they do is they go and they take and they make a copy of this and then the guy takes the original and he goes on to the next church and he reads it at the next church and 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 so on and so forth and so these these things kept getting passed around or a letter would get sent to one church and one church would keep the copy and the next church would copy it because they saw a value in it and so what would happen is is that these these writings would get copied over and over and over again and um it, it, even so much to the point of of, of when um the the first and second century, as we round out of the first century, we get into the second century, we get into the third century. And so we're talking hundreds of years later, hundreds of years later, we have copies upon copies upon copies of these texts, of these manuscripts. And so this is how the Holy Spirit is passing these things along to the church. And, and, and it's, it's a innately human process. There are scribes, there are are people sitting down and actually copying the text. They're using their wit, their mind, their human hand to copy text from one page to another. And I want you to just imagine something with me. Have you ever tried to copy something from one page onto another? How hard is it not to get a letter wrong? How hard is it not to get um, a section wrong? 
And, and I would tell you, some of the early manuscripts, the way that they wrote, it was so linear and so blocked, and there were no punctuation. There was no like like markings on it. It was just simply capital text. And it was in a straight line, and, and and oftentimes people would write in margins, and and there was just so many ways in which things could get copied incorrectly. Now, th- this accounts for I would say most of anytime we we hear of of a copy mistake or why we have footnotes in the Bible, why scholars think that there's multiple different translations or different readings of of a text. Which again, this is not something controversial. This is something that you can find in any Bible with footnotes. That's what the footnotes are. These are differences in manuscripts, differences in, in copy uh, copy um, um, edits that 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 people are trying to scholars are trying to make sense of and find the best one that fits and is most accurate to the original writing. Now, with Scripture, we have none, absolutely zero. Of the original autographs. The original autographs were the original copies where we would say that Mark sat down with his scribe and, and the scribe wrote on that paper. That would be the original. We have none of those um, and in our possession. And, and so what we have of the Bible is copies upon copies upon copies. And so what we believe and what we trust is the Holy Spirit guides this process. But at times what we see is is that there are differences in the copies. And, and so um, what is happening here in Mark and what is happening here in, in other places where we see bracketed quotes is that we have some copies that don't line up. So what happened with Mark is that we start to see that the earliest copies of the manuscripts, uh, the earliest manuscripts that we have do not have Mark 9 through 20. There's, there's actually three different thoughts on how Mark ends that, that scholars believe. Most scholars believe that the original Mark ended with uh, Mark chapter 16, verse 8. There are some scholars who believe that there is a short ending. And then there are scholars who believe that, that, that Mark contained all of Mark chapter 9, or Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20. There's, there's not... The main consensus is that that nine through twenty was not an original part of the original document, just because of the different way it's written, the different way, the different style it's written in, um, and 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 again, the earliest and most trusted manuscripts don't contain it. Um, you see, church historians who uh, do not reference these these passages. We see church histor- historians who reference the shorter ending. And so you see that there's there's these different kind of variants that we find in our in our manuscripts and our copies. And so what we get is as as modern day 20th century scholars and, and Bible readers and Bible believers, what we are left with is is this choice. So when when translators sit down to translate, they have to make a decision. Do we include these that we're not quite sure that they fit? Or do we not include them? Oftentimes they get footnoted. But when you get like multiple verses that, that need added or changed, what generally happens is they get bracketed. And so that's why you see this kind of bracketed off. Now, this is a short version. There's a lot more complex um, complex parts of this that, that I've left out. Parts that I still don't fully understand and I'm trying to figure out myself. But um, it's important for us to know that this is kind of the process that the Holy Spirit has used to give us in the 21st century 
a trustworthy uh, rendition of the testimony of the apostles. And so here's why I think the scholars included Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20, and why I think it's good for us to read and to study it and to trust that it is God's word to us. So I think scholars included it because all of the material that you find in 9 through 20, they are, um, none of it is, it stands in opposition to the testimony or orthodox testimony of, of the apostles. As a matter of fact, it all kind of contributes to and gives us more information about the early church. And so even though we're seeing this stuff show up, the, the, this, these verses show up in the, the, the late second century and the third century, which would have been hundreds of years after the writing of Mark, what, what's found in it is, is, um, what's found in it is information that is useful and, and agrees with what is said in every, everywhere else. And because there is controversy and because we, we don't have the original to compare it to, it, it kind of is better to, to leave it there. Um, and to glean from it what we can in, in the same way and treat it as, as God speaking to us, because he does speak to us through it. On the other side of it is scholars don't feel that they're confident enough to say that this was part of the original text to go, we can just throw it in there and, and people should read it without thinking about it. That's not what they do because they want to be honest about what they found and they want to be honest about the process. And, and we should want to know and be honest about the process as well. I don't think it should scare us or, or scare or, or shake our faith in any way, shape, or form that this is the process that God chose to use. Nor should we lose any confidence that God spoke to us through his word because this was the process. I mean, think about it. This is how he does everything. Does he not? speak through us now today. I mean, a pastor will stand up and interpret scripture. We're not adding to scripture. We're not changing scripture, but we will deem it as a human being sharing what the word of God means. And so we trust those being those human beings to, to uh, convey what the spirit of God is saying. And so this is how God has worked, how God has, has moved and challenged and changed uh, social structures, how he advanced the gospel has always been through human hands, through his church. And so we, that's why we also rely on church tradition. We also rely on experience and all these different ways of, of, of thinking through and, and, and coming to understand what truth is. Church tradition has held these verses in Mark for a long time. So which is another reason why scholars include it a lot of times. If you go to the NRSV, you will actually get to see both the, the long ending of Mark the short ending of Mark, and you can also stop at verse eight if you if you feel so led that this was the this that this was what Mark said. So um, this is just kind of a long explanation to get to get us to the place where I want to say this: God, in His wisdom and God in His His knowledge, gave us this book in this manner, and and what we are left to believe and to trust is that, that God was faithful in this process. And that the words that we have in this translation, the words that we have in the ASV, the words we have in the NRSV, the NIV, that, that they are faithful witnesses to the words of God. They are faithful witnesses to what the apostles wanted to communicate, what the initial church wanted to, what they saw as true in Jesus. 
and so and true in God. And so what we're left to do is to engage those things intellectually and with faith. In the end, and it's not a blind faith, it's not a faith that doesn't uh, think through these things. Like I said, we need to think about these things and, and ask questions and dive into why um, why why we have brackets around things and why the Word of God reads the way it does. And does it line up with life experience? Does it line up with our lives? But in the end, we're left to go, do I trust that God spoke through His Word? And, and when I look at Scripture, when I look at the Word of God, and I look at the story it tells, and I look at the words that it says, it makes the most sense of reality in my mind to me. It, it, it is, and it is what I would say is truth. It is reality. It most aligns with what I what I've seen and experienced in the world. And I don't mean just my own personal experience. I'm not I'm not talking about sub- subjectivism. What I'm talking about is when I look at the world around me. When I look at the world of my my friends and my family, when I look at the world and and and, and view it through um, and view what I see around me, what makes most sense is that God is true, that His Word and what He tells us in His Word is true, and that we can trust that Jesus is the Savior and the hope, and that that I trust and believe the witness of those initial apostles when they tell me that Jesus came back to life. I trust and believe it. And I shape my life around it, or I want to shape my life around it, even though I do it imperfectly. So this is the choice that we're left with. Do we trust and do we believe that Jesus is the the resurrected Messiah? And will we put our faith in him? And will we trust and believe that the words that, that, that God gave us, the words that the church has affirmed are true and authoritative, will we put our trust in that? So and see that it makes the most sense of the world around us and and hold that as true for our lives and true for the lives of the people that we love and 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 will make the most sense of their lives as well which is why we evangelize because we believe that Jesus is the one true God and and so this is what we can get and take from this this very human process and it's a great segue to our passages today because we're going to talk about the witness. We're going to talk about how what happens when when the ladies come back and they talk to the to the apostles. What do they do? How do they respond? And and how do they believe the witness that's told to them that the lady said, "I was just at the tomb and I I saw with my eyes the angel. I heard with my voice them say that he's resurrected and his body is gone and I believe it. Will you come and see?" Come and hear and listen to the testimony that I'm telling you and believe that Jesus is resurrected. As a matter of fact, let's pick up in verse 14, because this is what Mark has to say to us. He says, Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and the hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Jesus shows up after the ladies show up to the the eleven, and, and he says to them, why did you not believe me? I sent witnesses to you. And, 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 and this is the thing. Like, Mark is so clever in this. He says this because this is the, the, the method that God is going to use to advance the gospel, to advance the message. It's going to be based on their witness. 
And so when Mark writes this, he, he, he tells his audience and he tells us, even the 11 who heard Jesus say multiple times that he was going to die and then he was going to come back to life, they struggled to believe that this was true. They struggled to, to understand the witness. And so you're not alone in this. You, you're, you're, not, uh, you're not the only one who will struggle with this, but this is, this is the truth. The men that you see stand in front of you and proclaim as true as the day is bright that Jesus is resurrected, those men struggled with it too. And you can come to faith through the power of the Holy Spirit and through trust and by putting your faith in Jesus if you will just believe in this way. And he goes on, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This is Mark's great commission. We see it in Matthew 28, something very similar. And and Mark's great commission is to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel and Mark doesn't just stop with to, to all people. He says to all creation. And, and I, I love this. I, I really love this because it really brings into scope all that Jesus was doing. Jesus came to rescue, to restore, and to set right all of creation. Not just, not just, to, 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 um, not just to kind of come and, and, and to rescue people, though, though that's important. He come to set right all of creation. We see in Romans, Paul says that, that all of creation longs and mourns to be set free from the burden that was put upon them. And the burden that Paul's talking, talking about is the burden of the curse that, that came about when Adam and Eve uh, disobeyed God. The result or the consequence of Adam and Eve's sin was paid out on all of creation. And, and this is really a restoration of of who God designed humanity to be. When we see Adam and Eve in the, in the garden and God comes to them and he says, he says, fill the earth and subdue it. He says, have dominion. What he's saying is, is I want you to be a steward. I want you to be a tenant on the earth. And, and while you're here, how you're to do that, you're to represent me. You're to be my image to all of creation. And Mark says, all of creation is being brought back to that place as humanity is restored into the image of God. And, and, and when I say the image of God, what I mean is, is looking like and, and, and reflecting who God is. So essentially who Jesus was, he is the perfect ideal humanity, a uh, human. He, he was obedient to the Father. He represented the Father to the creation. He, he stewarded everything he was given well so that the world would know that there's a God creator and that he loves them and that he's involved in their lives. And this is what Jesus is trying to restore in us, in humanity, that image of God. And I'm not talking about the thing that, that all hum, humans share together. What I'm talking about is that image of God where we, where we share in the glory of God and we, re, re, we uh, reflect the glory of God to all of the world around us so that we are blessed and that the world around us is blessed. And so Mark kind of recognizes that and says, I don't want you just to think that, that you're going to be whisked away someday to some place and, and everything's going to be hunky-dory for you. No, this is a restoration. The gospel, the, the kingdom of God 
Jesus came to restore who you were meant to be and to, and to set even your purpose and your life and, and, and the creation around you to rights. And this will be the culmination. We're going we're gonna to hear about this um, in, in, at the end of Revelation. This is what Jesus is doing. He's restoring everything back to the way God intended it to be. And, and, and he's going to crown us with the glory that he always intended us for, for us to have. That glory of, of not being gods ourselves, but reflecting God and imaging God. And, 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 and the, the, the privilege that that is, but also the responsibility that that, that is. And, and Jesus often used the language of, of tenants in a vineyard. The tenant's job was to care for, maintain, and create a produce in that vineyard so that both they and the landowner would benefit. And, and, and think about it, if you rent a house, you are the tenant, you are the steward of that house. Someone who owns that home is allowing you to live there on the basis of that you will pay for it, that you will care for it, and that you will, um, you will in, in the way that you are, I, I, I say, I know some tenants write it in their contract that the, the landowner actually, or the, the landlord comes and takes care of the house. But you as the steward and renter are to, to care for it and to, and to make it thrive is the idea here. And this is what we are to creation. We as human beings are called to steward it and to care for it. And, and Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of all of that, of all of that being set into place and being put into motion. He continues on in verse 17. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, um, this is where I would like to leave this part of Mark off, honestly, because they talk about picking up servants with hands or serpents with hands with their hands. And I'm like, no, thank you. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm afraid of snakes if you don't know. But <clears throat> what we have here is we have this idea of supernatural power and authority from the spirit accompanying the, the testimony, accompanying the witness of the resurrection. We see this oftentimes with the apostles. When they would go and they would proclaim the gospel, uh, the Holy Spirit would fall and people would speak in tongues. People would be healed. Uh, these miraculous things would happen. And so we see the power and authority of the Spirit always accompanying and kind of putting the exclamation mark on the message of the gospel. And what Mark is trying to say is that, that as believers, when we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit— that these things should accompany, and, and we can walk in this authority. Now, what is not happening here, and and some some churches take this literally. You can go to some churches, and they will have in a box in the front of the church uh, poisonous serpents. Uh, you will never see me set foot in one of these churches, and if I ever uh, happen to accidentally walk into one, I will be leaving as quickly as possible. Um, again, I'm terrified of snakes, but um, but but some people take this literally in it, certain aspects of this literally, um, and 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 some people at some churches uh, do not, and, and and so I would say our church we don't drink poison or pick up serpents with our hands. Um, because we believe that, that that Mark is 
is teaching us something, um, not literally asking us to do something, if that makes sense. And here's what I mean. Jesus never called us to tempt God. As a matter of fact, that's one of the temptations that Satan puts before him. He says, um, he says that when he's standing on the temple and, and Satan tempts him to throw himself off so that God will rescue him, that, that is not what Mark is asking us to do here by picking up serpents and drinking poison. What he's simply saying is that, that there will be power and we will have nothing to fear of things that should scare us. We should not allow fear to keep us from advancing the gospel. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is with us and he will empower us to, to do anything that God asks us to do, even if that takes us to a place of fear. And what you have to realize is that Mark's audience is oftentimes being led to the slaughter. They're oftentimes being imprisoned. They're oftentimes being rejected by their culture. I mean, in such a way where they can't work and they can't eat. And, and, and so they can't provide for their families. And, and so these are scary and perilous times. And Mark wants them to know that, that where the gospel goes, the spirit of God goes. And where the spirit of God is, they can trust and they can put their faith in that, that God is with them and that God will provide for them, particularly when it comes to advancing and proclaiming and, and being a witness to the gospel. So we're not to tempt God, but we're also not to walk in fear of, of even the things that would terrify us. If I never went to a, 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 I've been on multiple mission trips, and if I decided not to go on mission trips because I was terrified of the snakes that were in those places, and I've been to multiple uh, tropical countries, if I didn't go because there were snakes there, and, and I've made decisions about certain things because of, of, to avoid snakes. So I don't go places where I know that there's poisonous snakes. But if I would allow fear to speak to me in that moment instead of trusting the Spirit, I would have not been blessed and, and the gospel would have not have been advanced. And so Mark wants us to understand that the Holy Spirit, that, that power, that, that the ability to speak in other languages, the ability to, um, to communicate with, with people we don't know, all of the things that cause us fear with advancing the gospel with sharing our faith with being witness of Jesus that the holy spirit provides for each and every single one of those things verse 19 so when the lord jesus after he had spoken to them was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of god we should look back to to mark chapter 13 here and we need to recognize this is what he said that the son of man would be glorified that he would be sitting he would come on the clouds seated at the right hand with the father and, and what we see here, see here is this has come to fulfillment. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, and he is glorified, and he is God. And, 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 and what we need to think about here is, is this whole idea, and Mark brings it all around almost to that Philippians 2, 1 through 11 passage. What, 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 what Paul says in, in Philippians is that Jesus was obedient unto death. He came as a servant. He emptied himself, was obedient unto death. But then God glorified him because of his obedience, that he would be seated at the right hand and that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And Mark says that happens. We see it right here. Jesus is seated on the right hand of the Father and that he is, um, he is King of kings and he is Lord of lords. In verse 20, And they went out and preached everywhere 
while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So essentially, how the long ending of Mark concludes is the disciples do what God commanded them to do. And all of these things that, that God had promised to them, that he would be with them, that he would fulfill that mission, that he would protect them, watch over them, and keep them, that it came true, and that it is coming true. And, and I think about this first audience who would have heard Mark for the first time, Mark's original audience. I think about them as they, as they look on and they see Peter and, and Paul and, and all these men advancing the gospel right in front of them that they see this very thing happening before their eyes, that they see their churches growing, that they see the, 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 the Spirit of God moving in miraculous ways. And, and Mark ends this, it, it, both his short ending, uh, if we would stop in Mark 8 and we would stop in Mark 20, either way, the end of Mark's gospel and the point of Mark's gospel is that, that we are each invited into the discipleship process to follow Jesus. We're each invited to take and be part of and be witnesses with the apostles to carry the gospel into all the world, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and to see the kingdom of God come to restore our lives and to restore the world around us. And this is why Mark writes the gospel. And this is what Mark calls us to. And so as we conclude, and, and I'm getting to be the long-winded pastor here, I realize I'm taking <laughs> so long to go through my Bible studies. I apologize about that. But Mark's heart is that, that we would all find in ourselves, we would see ourselves in the, in the disciples, that we would see the struggles that they went through and that we would not be disheartened, but that we would find life and enjoy and, and purpose and mission in being followers of Jesus and being witnesses for the good news and the hope that he has for us. Jesus is Messiah. He is true. He is our hope. And we can put our faith and our trust in him. Thank you so much for joining us through this book of Mark. I pray that it has blessed your life and I pray that it has challenged you to take more seriously and to, to go deeper in your discipleship journey as you learn to love, grow, and follow Jesus. Have a great week.